What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, still reacting to the biggest trade that the Celtics have had in recent history. They've had a lot of big trades. Of course, the Jason Tatum trade, the Kevin Garnett trade, as they all kind of go together with the Brooklyn Nets, bringing in a guy like Kyrie Irving. But we had a big one last week, Marcus Smart, essentially for Kristaps Porzingis, a couple of first round picks. Since then, we've had the draft. We have not been able to talk with our friend Michael Pina from The Ringer, about this trade yet. He actually has an article up about the trade. Are the Celtics too smart for their own good? Pino, what's going on, man? How are you? What's up, Ryan? How you doing, man? I'm doing well. I've been in like the Porzingis smart hive for like six days, breaking down every angle of this trade. So just your initial thoughts of the day before we get into the specifics of the trade, because you had the Brogdon trade that was on the table that didn't happen. And then we have the Marcus smart trade. It's like, Oh, man, I got to take a step back and think about this now, because the Brogdon thing, you're like, yes, this makes a ton of sense for both teams. Like, this is awesome. And then the smart, it's like the longest tenured member of the Celtics organization. But what was your mindset like Wednesday afternoon into the evening when we got the official trade, or I guess technically the trade that was going to happen compared to the previous trade, which was Malcolm Brogdon? It's just like a crazy range roller coaster of emotions for me personally. I think you texted me the day before, maybe, asking if I thought the Celtics would move on from Brogdon or Smart or White or um, just who they would trade if they had to break up the guards. And I think I said Brogdon, if I'm not mistaken, was the guy I would trade for for obvious reasons. I mean, um, the contract is what it was, his age, injury history, but just also like... I just couldn't mentally imagine Brad Stevens trading Marcus Smart. Yeah. Um, I covered the Celtics in 2017, the Isaiah Thomas year, 
and Brad Brad Stevens was the coach then, obviously. And I wrote I don't even know how many stories I wrote about Marcus, but I just loved him so much, and I would like ask Brad so many so many questions about Marcus's value and how you quantify it and all this. And he just I was rereading all those stories when he was traded because like just like you can't put a number on Marcus Smart, what he brings to your locker room, what he brings to you on the floor, the fact that he's always been to the playoffs, the fact that uh, in every single season he is a positive net rating, a stat that's just like mind-blowing to me for someone who is, uh, you know, never made an all-star team. Uh, I adore Marcus. I think that he's, I mean, he's one of my all-time favorite Celtics and when you get really clinical about the trade, which I'm sure we will, and you see like, oh, they get back Chris Dasporzingis and you bring in two first round picks at the time, like that's kind of a no brainer, but it just changes the whole, I mean, changes the identity of who you are and what you're about in a lot of ways. And some might say that they needed to shake things up. And if you need to shake things up, who else would you move on from then like your fiery point guard and uh, I think that they're they're not done building this team obviously offseason hasn't even officially started and there's some question marks on this team um, that I'm interested in to see if how the roster looks now versus how it'll look on opening night but uh, yeah man I the the Marcus Morris Mark Malcolm Brogdon uh uh, Chris Porzingis trade made a lot of sense for everybody. I thought that that was going to go through, and this one has just leaves a lot, a uh, lot of questions. I think um, some of them are good, but some of them are just like we just won't know what this team looks like until we see them play. Well, one thing I think Pina that made him more expendable than he was maybe two three weeks ago is they hired Sam Cassell and Charles Lee, so Marcus no longer needs to be an assistant coach running the huddles with, with sure. the whiteboard. Remember last year during the playoffs, he's running the huddles instead of Joe Missoula, so that made him expendable in some sense. But going back to Marcus, I wonder this with Smart is, and this is sort of a conversation, I heard Bill mention this on his pod, but I do wonder if this is sort of, the Patriots, where you're getting rid of a player a year too early or a year too late. It's a point I made the other day, because if you look at some of the numbers last season in terms of Marcus Smart, regular season, he was in the 15th percentile as an ISO defender two years ago, 93rd percentile when he won Defensive Player of the Year. And I get he was dealing with an injury, but that's sort of kind of my point is as you get older, you tend to get more banged up. And if you look at the defensive rating via cleaning the glass, 3.4 points worse per 100 with him on the court last year, 22nd percentile. Two years ago, that was at 2.0 better, which was in the 67th percentile. The on-off differential via cleaning the glass, now the net rating, as you mentioned, was positive, minus 1.8, which was in the 42nd percentile, plus 5.9 two years ago, the 84th percentile. Now, you could argue that maybe he was just banged up because I will say this, he looked much better defensively in the postseason than he did during the regular season. So maybe it just took him some time to recover. But is there an argument to be made that maybe this was the peak value for Marcus Smart, where you got two first-round picks back that you think, okay, maybe if we try to make this move next offseason, if, say, hypothetically, as a similar year to the one that he had this year, that value is not going to be there. And from a roster construction standpoint, it does make more sense to bring in a big man 
you would have rather moved on from Brogdon. But is there an argument to be made that, hey, maybe you're getting out in front of the smart situation a year earlier rather than a year late? It's certainly possible. Um, I'm personally higher on him bouncing back and having an excellent next couple seasons than I think some other some other people are. Like I think that the Memphis Grizzlies will really love the Marcus Smart experience. I think he'll be terrific for them on both sides of the ball. I think he has a lot of great basketball left in him. Um, but like, yeah, again, if you're talking about value, you're not getting two firsts. I know they flipped one of those firsts and turned it into a million seconds and uh, Jordan Walsh. But uh, you're not getting two firsts and like a better player on an expiring contract. Like that's just like Chris Hapsburzingis has all stars. Like his, he's an all-star talent. That's what he is. And like, it wouldn't be insane if he made an all-star team or two in Boston. Like that's how good he is. He's super talented in a winning situation, which he will potentially be in totally on the table. Like could definitely see it happening if he stays healthy. Uh, so yeah, like if you're talking like uh, if it's Bill Chicken, yeah, it is a little bit for sure. <laughs> um, but I also think like we should go back and understand that the Celtics were not trying to get off of Marcus Smart. Right, we know that right. because the Brogdon trade fell through. <laughs> like so, <laughs> um, they clearly thought that Marcus Smart was like really still really good, or they would not have uh, gone a different gone down a different path. Um, as they did before the Clippers kind of blew things up. Yeah, no doubt about that. So let's get into the Porzingis part of the equation because you had some, and I went through some numbers the other day, but you had some fascinating numbers in your article up at the Ringer. The Wizards as a team generated 125.3 points per 100 direct plays in a Porzingis post-up. Third in the league behind DeMar DeRozan and Jokic, some guy that people may have heard of. I think he just won this thing called the Finals MVP. And those are of players that average two post-ups per game. Now, of the 47 players that set at least 1,000 ball screens, Washington on those screens, 1.23 points per possession. That ranked first out of those 47. Now, I mentioned the other day, the offensive numbers just with him on the floor were through the roof. But Pina, this is something that, is Joe Mazzulla just going to embrace this? Because it was interesting, Brad mentioned posting up, right, during the... Uh, press conference after the draft where he's talking about some of the things that Porzingis brings to the table. But man, like looking through some of the numbers, they look good. But when I read this in your article, I'm like, holy shit, like this is sort of incredible stuff. So going back, because you had clips to a lot of these plays as well, like what did you notice? Because remember, I remember earlier in his career, like the post-ups were an issue for him. Rick Carlisle had this huge back and forth with Charles Barkley about this. So what was different about Porzingis last year as a post-up player than in years past. Yeah, I think, first of all, like, aesthetically, it's very similar, to be honest with you. Like, even earlier in his career, he's not Joel Embiid. You don't throw him the ball on the block, and he's, like, taking three dribbles and throwing somebody into the stanchion and dunking on them. He's not, like, super (laughs) strong. And as he has gone on in his career, teams have understood that, oh, if we put, like, a... Uh, a like a beefy wing on him, or just like a six seven forward on him who's versatile. Like he can't overpower that dude, and we're fine. I think last year what you saw was a guy who did a lot of the same stuff, 
and hit a lot of like really tough shots. And a lot of that was mid post. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was also screening. And this is like ties into just like how efficient they were of an offense when he was, you know, they would run pick and roll with him. And like credit goes to Brad Beal, who is really great. But he also did a lot of this with like Monte Morris and um, some less heralded pick and roll ball handlers. But like if you switch, um, which a lot of teams are doing more, uh, and he gets a small on him, like it's just kind of, it's mouse in the house with him. And he's been really direct, really deliberate. When help comes, he's not like, I think I wrote this in a story, he's not Nikola Jokic. It's not who he is, not like a genius passer. Very good passer, though, particularly compared to when he first came in the league. So like the points per position on post-ups, um, that accounts for when double comes, when help comes, him reading the defense, him hitting the open man, him getting off the ball, willing passer. And I think you'll see a lot of that in Boston. Also, just like rolling into post-ups where, oh, now I have a small on me. Let me roll to into the middle of the paint, catch here, turn, quick shot, uh, point blank. Like, And he made a lot of those. And one of the more interesting stats to me was like, uh, quantified shot making is just a statistic in uh, second spectrum, and it essentially kind of calculates like how like your expected effective field goal percentage versus um, what your effective field goal percentage actually was. And he was the like quote unquote luckiest shooter, high volume in a lot mm. of ways last season, and. Again, hit a lot of really tough shots. And that statistic factors in a lot of different things. And it also factors in like who you are as a player. And I think what Brad is kind of banking on with this move is like who he was last year is who he will be moving forward post injury, assuming he's healthy. And like when you watched him play, I, I know he gets a rat- bad rap from his time with uh, the Dallas Mavericks. But like before he had the meniscus surgery, um, post bubble, like in the bubble, he was amazing. He was, like he was great. Re- he was really good. I thought they were gonna win that series before he got hurt. One hundred percent. So I think there's just a lot of talent here, a lot of different ways you can use him. Um, off ball, fascinating ways that I think they will use him in a lot of ways, honestly, that Will Hardy used Larry Marketin. Uh, last year, and we all know what happened with Lowry Markinen. Like, Chris Epsworzingis is that type of talent. Uh, I think, like, for me, the questions are more so, like, on the defensive end, very good rim protector. But when you kind of, like Brad said, that you could play KP at the three, and I'm like, <laughs> no. No. It's just like I I I think he was being a little facetious just to like make a point, but I'm a little curious about you go from one of the most versatile defenders in basketball who allowed you to do the switch everything scheme, and I know what the numbers are, but like at the end of the day, like they had the second best defense in the NBA last season, and Marcus is a big part of that, and like he's just a big part of your identity and how you want to play on that side of the ball, and you replace him with Chris Stapps, it's just very different. So my, I'm less concerned with the offense. I think the offense will be really good. I think he'll be wonderful for Tatum, wonderful for Derek White, um, fantastic with Jalen. 
I'm really interested to see like what type of player Jalen is coming back. Now we know, or a lot of reports indicate that he's going to get that supermax extension. And I'm just really fascinated to see how he kind of comes in um, and is able to to play off a big like Porzingis who can really get give you a lot of space. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it changes a lot for how you want to play, what your identity is, and defensively, what they look like will be really fascinating to me. Yeah, biggest thing with Jalen is I guess we'll see if he learned how to dribble in the offseason. That's a big thing in the NBA that tends to hurt you when you can't dribble. So we'll see if he developed that, Pina. But you mentioned the quantified shot making. That's interesting to me that they're they're basically banking on, hey, these numbers from last year are real. I looked at it too, like the short mid-rangers, which cleaning the glass has between 4 and 14 feet. He was 142 of 284, 50%, 71st percentile. And the Celtics barely took any shots from there last year. They were 27th because they're not really considered to be efficient shots. But Kristaps Porzingis can certainly hit those. Another great number you had from your article when you mentioned the defense, and obviously they're not going to switch as much with Kristaps Porzingis, but you mentioned Mm -hmm. in the article he does a great job in the cat and mouse game, so to speak. But 210 players, you said, were the the closest defender at least 200 shots in the paint. Out of those 210 players, only Jaron Jackson Jr., who was considered for the Defensive Player of the Year, Anthony Davis, Draymond Green, Nick Claxton, Royce O'Neal held opponents to a lower field goal percentage than Kristaps Porzingis at 42%. So we've seen, obviously, he can protect the rim just because he's seven foot three. It's difficult to get a shot off. But how much of this is luck or how much of this is just he's really good at being sort of a hindrance for these guys getting those, whether it be floaters, mid-rangers, those type of shots off? I think it's a combination of both, honestly. Like, I watched a lot of the shots that he was contesting in the paint. And sometimes you just get lucky. Sometimes you have a hard contest and the guy makes it. Like, it's just, I mean, it's the NBA. So um, what I'm more fascinated about with him is just the different ways he can guard a pick and roll because he's going to be tested. Um, And assuming the Celtics do not switch, they're not going to. Um, Like, how often are they willing to just bring him really high on the floor and rotate behind the play, which is something that the Celtics haven't really done a lot of um, over the past few years. They kind of pride themselves on being kept out of rotation. So if you look at like the up to touch numbers with KP, they've been really good defending ball screens. And so are you going to break that out or is he going to be in a deep drop? Are they going to switch it up a little bit? Um, Which is the most likely outcome. But like when he's hiding out, let's say when they have double bigs, which I think he'll play primarily most of his minutes in, as, uh, maybe not. Maybe he'll play the five. I, I don't think so. But um, who knows with Joe Missoula and his prior prioritizing of the offense. <laughs> but if you put him on, you know, a, a weak shooting wing and let him kind of just help, I think he can be like a really uh, intimidating presence and a powerful defensive player. So it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to see how it's how it kind of all shakes out. And I think what Brad really prioritized was uh in making this move is like size and just yeah. being able to have skill and multiple seven footers or multiple seven five wingspans on the court at the same time. Like that's really valuable. Um and the other thing is like when you just look at the 
it from a Marcus Smart to Chris Porzingis swap um, with your roster, you're getting someone who is a knockdown. I know he shot, I think, 29% on uncontested threes last year. That number will go up. But a knockdown three-point shooter, which is what Chris Tapps is, who can shoot off motion, who can shoot a ton of different ways, trail threes, etc., um, has to be respected behind the three-point line versus an iffy three-point shooter who took a few more haphazard ones than maybe you would want. I don't. <laughs> so I think that just that that upgrade specifically and how you're going, you're one of the best three-point shooting teams teams in the league, um, and you add Porzingis and you subtract someone who I think shot. I'm going off the top of my head, like 33% maybe during the regular season behind the arc. So I think that uh, that uh, that upgrade is really interesting too. Well, and your point too about Jalen earlier, this makes a lot of sense too because Porzingis is going to pull the big out of the lane. Like the big is going to have to come up with Porzingis because he's seven foot three, so he's getting defended by a big. And that means that Jalen Brown, there's going to be less help defense, especially when he's on the court with Porzingis and with Jason Tatum. So the dribbling Mm -hmm. issues that he's had in the past, Jalen's going to have an easier opportunity when it comes to that too. So that brings me sort of this guard situation now with smart out of the picture. We know everybody's happy. We've had a parade that Derek White is now going to be the every game point guard, and he's going to get the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. But the other part of this is Pritchard, it felt like he's definitely out, right? Because he had asked for a trade like midseason. He was upset about his role. And I totally understand where he's coming from. Maybe don't say all that stuff publicly, but I totally understand. He's good enough to play in the NBA. And then you now have to smooth things over with Brogdon. We already heard that Brad had talked to Brogdon, et cetera. I do wonder about Brogdon is coming off an injury and he was really good last year because he kept his minutes down, right? He was fresh at the end of the season before the injury. And this is a weird injury. It's not a lower body thing. It's in his arm. But do you think now both of these guys are back with the team that they roll with the white, Brogdon, Pritchard backcourt? Or do you think with the issues with Pritchard in terms of wanting a trade, the issues with Brogdon already being traded then not traded, do you think they have to move on from one of those guys? Or do you think the most likely scenario is they roll with that trio? They could roll roll with those three and I think be okay. I like Peyton Pritchard a lot. Um, yeah, I do too. He's he, really good. Um, and he was probably the best player in the league last season who wasn't in, a, in an NBA rotation on an NBA roster. Um, you could definitely make that argument. So I think that they would be comfortable with those three. I also just I, I just have felt like this team needs a like a professional table setter. Monty like, Morris? That, that's literally the name I was about to say, dog. Like that's <laughs> that's exactly who I just think that would be perfect. And I don't know what it would take to get him from Washington. I would imagine based on how they're trading with people, uh not much. <laughs> I mean, you just got four seconds and on draft night, like give two of them to Washington. Um, but no, I just, I, I just think like that type of player, uh, like I don't think that they're going to give up Tyus Jones. Maybe they would at the right price, but like Monte Morris is awesome and uh, knows how to play with superstars, takes care of the basketball. I wrote a story about him a few years ago. It's just like really, I just love talking ball with him. Um and you could tell like when he showed up at the finals 
and he saw it was like rooting on his former team. Like, who does that? Like, who goes to the finals game to cheer on teammates? After, like the organization that traded you, um, and they love seeing him. So I just I, I think he's just a beloved figure. He would fit right in, and he would just like alleviate a lot of the. I mean, like right now, I just feel like. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have a lot of playmaking responsibilities that they have to assume. And like, I don't think you can just give all of what Marcus Smart did to Derek White and be okay. I don't think that that's how it's going to work out. So um, Monte Morris would be really good and he would be really good complimenting Tatum and Jalen, which is at the end of the day, like that's how you're uh, like every personnel decision you make needs to be that and also to say nothing of like he played last year with Chris Tapp's Porzingis like I think that there's value there too so oh yeah um, that's just a guy who I would like I'd be really about trying to get and I, I would I love Pritchard and I understand like the salary and with the new CBA why that is so valuable but I would consider like hey like Pritchard for Monte Morris like what how can we make this happen yeah, and like I've been hard on Pritchard at times just because in the postseason it was more about Missoula, like putting him into those games with Jimmy Butler. It made no sense because from a defensive perspective, he can't hold up. But during the regular season, he brings a lot of value. But that would be an interesting swap. And Washington, man, they've all of a sudden cornered the market on like the assist to turnover kings with Monty Morris and Tyus Jones. I'd expect them to go into the season with Jones and they could probably get something pretty significant for him at the deadline for a contender or if a point guard goes down near the trading deadline or prior to the trading deadline. He's a guy that could certainly move, but I would love that Monty Morris and Pritchard in Washington would make sense too as a younger player that could get a lot more opportunities there because it's not exactly like they're in a rush to win games. So I wanted to ask you about Grant because we all know weird season, but he still shot 39 and a half percent from three, despite the issue that he had surgery on with the hand, 45% in the playoffs. Now I look at a bunch of these places because I believe he's gone. Somebody's going to pay him. And maybe you disagree with that. But just the teams I was looking at, the Spurs, Bill suggested the Spurs on his pod, they could use some shooting. And he's still a young player that could develop with that group at 25. You look at some of the other teams, the Rockets, I know they have the money, but it feels like they would go big game hunting and they have enough bigs. I don't think that really makes sense just because do you really want to get your money involved in a restricted free agent when there's bigger fish out there? The Pistons have cap money. They from my perspective, just have way too many bigs. I mean, they just traded for Wiseman. They have Bagley. Like, there's just too many guys there. The Magic have space, which I think would be an interesting fit. We heard the Dallas connection. He's buddies with Luka, same agency as well. I feel like the Spurs fit, the Dallas fit, and also Indiana with Halliburton, who's an outstanding passer, another guy that can space the floor with Grant and play quality defense. I think it's going to end up Pina, based on, I think he's going to have a market here. Maybe it's less than he thought it was originally, but I think it's going to be, I know last year he's looking for 20 million. It's not going to be that, but I think it's going to be somewhere in that $15 million range. I really think the two best fits from my perspective would be the Pacers. And I would say Dallas, although that situation going forward, who knows with the Kyrie thing and all that, it could be a place you don't want to be. But where do you think is the best fit for Grant? And do you think that in all likelihood he's gone? I think it'll be really interesting to know what Boston's price is. If a team <clears throat> with a non-taxpayer mid-level offers it in full, guaranteed to Grant, are the Celtics a lock to match that? I think is a very interesting question. Um, 12.4 first year, I believe. Um, 
And assuming that they keep KP, assuming that they re-sign Jalen on a Supermax extension, like Grant Williams as your what, seventh, eighth man on the mid-level, um, is that how you want to allocate your your financial resources? I don't know. So I think that that right there is interesting because it then if they're not willing to match, then that opens up a lot of other teams that don't have cap space, right? So I think San Antonio, for starters, um, is a really good fit for a lot of reasons. I just think Grant is awesome, and I think he fits in all the teams that you mentioned. I also do think that he fits in Houston, with especially the coach that mm. they just hired. Oh, yeah. Good point. Uh, um, that email guy. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that having Grant as someone if I'm Ime and I have any voice whatsoever in personnel decisions, like here's a player, I need to clean up the culture in Houston real fast. Like that's my number one objective and bringing in Grant, who's one of the best locker room guys in the league. One of the best personalities makes life easier on everyone else. Self-sacrificial on the court, off the court, all that stuff. I would be like calling Raphael stone every day being like, can we, I don't care. Like I know he's restricted, but like, I want this guy. So um, I just think he fits in a lot of places. And Indiana, really, that's a smart take by you for sure. Um, my uh, podcast co-host, uh, Sirat Sohi, mentioned the Cleveland Cavaliers with their Ooh. non-taxpayer. And that one really had my ears perking up because if they targeted him, that's like what I'm going back to what I was saying before about the mid-level. Like, if the Cleveland Cavaliers offer the mid-level to Grant Williams, are you matching? Is that guaranteed? Like, I just think him there would be really good. Um, starting at the three, you can play four when Mobley's at the five or Allen's at the five and Mobley's resting. Uh, you need a knockdown corner three shooter. That was like one of your big weaknesses. That's Grant Williams in a nutshell. So... I think he's awesome. I think he fits in a lot of places. I think the Celtics will miss him if they don't have him, particularly if they go up against the Milwaukee Bucks in the playoffs next year and uh, the Bucks keep Brook Lopez and keep everybody together and Giannis is healthy. So Grant's great. Um, wouldn't ch- I, I mean, I'm kind of expecting them to lose him, I guess is what I'm saying. Like I think he has a lot of value around the league and uh, good teams want him, bad teams want him. He's, yeah. he's great. And I kind of hope he ends up in a nice spot where he's got a big role, right? Like it's, I would have a tough time if I'm the Celtics matching the offer too, just because he's done everything you've asked within the organization and wherever he's going to go, he's going to be a starter next season. So I feel like he deserves the opportunity to start. If it's not here, then elsewhere. I know that's not how the business works, but I feel like Grant Williams has certainly deserved a starting spot in the NBA. Not with the Celtics, obviously one of the only teams he wouldn't start for. I think somewhere else he can find it. All right. So before I let you go, Pina, I just wanted to get to the East in general here because Bradley Beal ends up going, of course, to Phoenix. And it didn't feel like the Heat were super into that deal. As we heard originally, those were the two teams. And Bradley Beal, like called all the shots with that anyway. But you had an article up in terms of at the ringer right now, where the most intriguing NBA players and teams of free agency, and you mentioned the Heat, and you said with just nine players under contract next season, the Heat are only $3.4 million below the second tax apron. They get to take care of Struce, Vincent, and see what happens with Kevin Love. And then you look at the Bucks, Middleton, it appears he's going to get a new deal. I mean, I imagine that he was in the meetings for 
the next head coach. So apparently you would think that they've certainly agreed on something like the parameters, maybe not the exact numbers, but Lopez, he could be gone. I know you mentioned him being back, but the Rockets, I mean, that's the team that's been rumored to go after Brooke Lopez. And actually, again, Bill made a good point where it's like he already has a ring. So it's not like he's at the point where he's searching for a ring. So if it's one last payday, he he may be like, all right, yeah, you know what? I'm certainly interested in that. And then you look at Philly. Harden, we know, is a free agent. In all indications right now, early on in free agency, it was like, well, Harden's going to consider going to the Rockets, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. It seems like he's going to end back up with Philadelphia. Now, you do have Tobias Harris's father that's upset with his role, said that he's an assassin and he can't just be, be the fourth option in the corner anymore. But I do feel like if you just look at the landscape of the East— Unless Lillard's traded, which it doesn't feel like right now. I know Brian Windhorse reported that Lillard had a meeting with the Blazers. Uh-huh. It really doesn't feel like it feels like maybe the Kristaps Porzingis move to the Celtics will be the biggest move that any of these contenders. And I'm talking about the contenders. I talk about Philly. Maybe you can throw Cleveland in the conversation as well. But of course, Milwaukee and Miami, who just came off that finals run I don't really consider the Knicks to be in that same category although who knows maybe if Cat somehow becomes loose they because they just signed Nas uh, Nas Reed out there in Minnesota maybe the Knicks would be the team that would be interested in a guy like Carl Anthony Towns to space the floor with them but out of the contenders do you think anybody else makes a big splash this offseason I think everybody is petrified of the new CBA yeah like petrified Nobody wants to take on long-term money, and I mean, Miami's situation is just really interesting to me because they have a lot of money tied up into Jimmy. Like I don't think that people understand how much money Jimmy's about to make on his extension, which when he first signed it, it didn't look good because of his age and wear and tear, et cetera. He's coming off an amazing season. Um, he's about to make a ton of money. Uh, Bam's obviously on the max and he's extension eligible and they love him there. So they're going to max him again. I would imagine as soon as they can. Uh, so it's like if you're Miami and you're coming off this playoff run that, you know, I'm not trying to be dismissive at all because it was so impressive what they did, but you know, historic, lucky three-point shooting luckiest Giannis of all there, time is is up there um uh obviously the Giannis injury uh both Nick stars were hurt in that series and I know Jimmy sprained his ankle of course and Tyler Hero broke his hand and all that but they just they had injury luck I think that their team is better without Tyler Hero personally so um like what do you do if you're them and you don't get Dame do you panic and I know there was talk about, you know, waving, stretching Kyle Lowry. And that might just be a move to bring back Struess and uh, and Gabe Vincent if you can. And then it's like, okay, well, I don't I just don't know where that gets you or how that makes you better. Do you panic and take future picks and try to get someone like OG Ananobi, like flip Duncan Robinson and mm. picks for OG? Is that something you think about? But like. If I'm Miami, I want to star hunt. So I don't want to give up those picks. I want to wait until Dame is like, I'm only going to Miami or whoever the next star is who gets disgruntled. So I just don't know what their future path is right now. I think it's really tricky. 
I think people need to understand that it's very expensive. And also, they were an eight seed. And they were an eight seed for a reason. So what happens with them, I'm, I'm really, I can't wait to see, assuming that they don't get Dame Lillard. Um, yeah, I mean, I think elsewhere, yes, yeah, it'd probably be pretty quiet with, uh, like, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, borderline needle movers who are out there for the mid-level. You mentioned Brooke Lopez. I think he might be able to be had for the mid-level. Um, and you have teams like Cleveland and New York, and there's, I think the Sixers also have their non-taxpayer mid-level available to them. So we could see some really interesting, um, interesting moves, interesting additions, but like definitely not anything on like the Marcus Smart for Chris Stapps, just like shockwave that the Celtics had and any, any moves that will like fundamentally alter what a contender looks like. Um, I do think that uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, I would keep your eye on them too. It just feels like bringing Middleton back and losing Brooke Lopez. And what are you doing? Like that's, yeah. So I'm not like reporting anything or anything, but like Drew Holiday being on the move would not like absolutely stun me. Whoa. Uh, I'd be happy with that. Get him out of the East. So, so, so yeah, I just I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff that could still happen, but nothing like that'll cause an earthquake or anything like that. All right, Pina, I know I said one last one, but I got to get your take on this real quickly. Sorry about this. I, for- I forgot to ask you this earlier. Our buddy Danny Ainge, our old friend, traded for John Collins essentially for nothing. After years of rumors yeah. with John Collins, he gets traded for basically Rudy Gay's contract. And so you look at it in an ideal world, they would have had Wembenyana, Scoot, or Brandon Miller, or... Maybe one of the Thompson twins, right? But they were too good. Will Hardy was too good of a coach. They even tried at the deadline. They traded away Mike Conley, which obviously hurt their team in terms of their playoff chances last season. But when you look at the John Collins thing, he hasn't been able to shoot for a couple of years ever since he hurt the finger. He's south of 30%. Now, we do know that he can do some other things. Like he's uh, in the Celtics series, he did what he used to do, which was offensive rebound, which is now Utah's huge with Walker Kessler and that group of guys marketing at the three, and you can play Collins wherever you want, essentially. But my overwhelming point about this is it seems like, okay, they're good, so they think maybe this is a bet on the player, which seems kind of odd to me because of the fact that maybe they could have got more with the salary cap space they have, but maybe the Porzingis thing is the guy they were targeting, and that sort of lessened their chances to get other guys. But my other thing is, does this feel like to you that Danny is just going to recoup his value and he's actually going to get something in return for Collins because Collins is all of a sudden going to have a bounce back here in Utah where it seems like all these guys marketing all of a sudden looks like a star with Will Hardy? Like, what do you think's the end game here for Danny Ainge? Does he just think it's a good asset play? I think it's the latter. Yeah. Asset I think play? That, uh, yeah, I think he saw an opportunity to fill cap space. By the way, they still have 12 million, I think, left in cap space. And again, like the offseason hasn't even officially started yet. Um, It's kind of, you know, it's not the exact same thing as the uh, Isaiah Thomas trade, but it's just like, oh, I can get a really good player for basically nothing. I don't have to give Mm. up any of the firsts. It's a good comp. That we have. Like, just like, let's get better. I'm, I'm, they're able to build this team on whatever timeline they want. Because they own all of Minnesota's draft capital, <laughs> and they own a ton of Cleveland draft capital as well. So, like, they can make any trade 
really that they want. Um, they can go slow. They can accelerate. Um, I I like the fit. I like John Collins a lot. I like the fit there. You you make a really good point with the three point shooting for sure. That needs to to bounce back. Um, I think it will. I think he complements uh, Colin Sexton as a pick and roll tandem. I think that uh, you can play him with Kessler. You can play him with Lowry. You can play him potentially with all three. I don't know how often they'll do that, but like they did the same thing last year with uh, Jared Vanderbilt in those lineups, and Jared Vanderbilt can't shoot. So. <laughs> Yeah, if I mean, we'll see what happens with Kelly Olynyk too. There, whose non guaranteed date is I think tomorrow. Uh, so if they keep him, that would be hilarious. Um, but I, I just like everything that they're doing there. Um, the guy that they just drafted ninth overall said he he wants to be the next Bam Adebayo and the next Jaron Jackson Jr. So like, hey man, like if you are eighty percent of that, um, yeah, future's bright in Utah. I like it a lot, and maybe they flip. Collins, maybe Collins is like amazing next season and they're able to flip that contract. I honestly don't think that that is like a really like a value contract on the market. (laughs) Um, A lot of years still on it. A lot of money. Yeah. But I like the direction that Utah is headed in and I like the the flexibility that they have. And I, I like this move for them a lot. Yeah, and you reminded me too, Kelly Olenek, the Kelly Olenek game against the Washington Wizards. And he, remember, got this tribute video for the Celtics. So now that I'm thinking about it, when Smart comes back to town, it's going to be like, hey, fans, please arrive at five o'clock for a tribute movie. It, they can't do a tribute video. It's going to be like a two hour film on Marcus Smart's time with the Celtics. All right, that is Michael Pina. Read his article up on the Smart Trade of the Celtics too smart for their own good. It's up at the ringer. And of course, Just did a pod as well, doing double duty today. Of course, (laughs) up on the Ringer NBA feed if you want to check that one out, the answer. Pina, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Get some tea in your system, man. Make sure to rest up the vocal cords. Appreciate you, Brian. Baseball season is in full swing, and there's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because right now, new customers get a no-sweat-first bet up to $1,000. That's up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just go to FanDuel.com slash Pike to join today. All right, and I'm looking at this Red Sox-Marlins game coming up on Wednesday night. Braxton Garrett goes for the Marlins. He has a 29.8% strikeout rate on the season. That's 7th of 81 starters, so he's going to miss a lot of bats. And I'm looking at his alternate strikeout line. I like him to get at least 7 strikeouts because, remember, the Red Sox, prior to this Marlins series, they had a 5-game stretch where they struck out 31.7% of the time. That was 29th in Major League Baseball during that stretch. And as I said, Garrett strikes out a lot of guys. So I like that alternate strikeout line at seven. I will take Justin Turner for a hit in this game on Wednesday as well. He's hitting 315 in the month of June. So he's been red hot. So I like Garrett in terms of the alternate strikeouts at seven and Turner for a hit because he's just been basically the Red Sox best offensive player for a month now. So don't miss your chance to snag a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 when you join FanDuel today. Just go to FanDuel.com slash Pike to sign up. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook.
Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Pina, as always, as we get closer to free agency in the NBA. Cannot wait. Coming up on Friday, officially the 30th, starts about 6 p.m. Of course, we'll hear stuff before then, but it does feel like the biggest move that the Celtics have made has already been done. We've talked about the Porzingis Smart trade. Great take from Pina on that as well. It is going to be bizarre seeing Marcus Smart come back to the garden after all these years here. Now, I did want to piggyback of something that Pina and I were just talking about as it pertains to the Monty Morris move. If they could get Monty Morris, it would be perfect to be that point guard off the bench. That's the role that he's accustomed to when he was in Denver. And of course, he started a bunch when Jamal Murray was out. But in Washington, he's a guy that can come off the bench, can play point guard behind Derek White, start in games where if you're dealing with an injury to somebody, he could start. You could play super small in the backcourt. But man, some of the numbers on him, and I know I said the assist to turnover king, he was at 5.4 in terms of his assist to turnovers last year. That was number one in the entire NBA. And how many times have we talked about the Celtics team, the careless turnovers, they're reckless with the ball. Some of the decisions just irritate you. It does feel like this would be the perfect guy to sort of shepherd the second unit. When Derek White goes to the bench, you have Monty Morris play point guard. And if Pritchard goes to Washington, it would give him a bigger opportunity for a younger player. Morris is at the point in his career where he's trying to win an NBA championship, right? Pina mentioned the fact he was watching his old teammates win one. That's where he wants to be. He wants to be on a team that's winning an NBA championship, and the Celtics would give you one of the best opportunities to win a championship. Some of the other numbers on him, too. He averaged 10.3 a game in 27 minutes, 38.2% from three. Obviously, that's a really good number and 48% from the field. So he had a really good season. You look at the offense last year in Washington, 7.1 points better per 100 possessions with him on the court. That was in the 94th percentile. You look at the on-off differential in general. And remember, this is a bad Washington team. Kind of the same thing we said about the Porzingis situation. They were plus 3.7 with him, the on-off differential, plus 3.7. That was in the 73rd percentile. And just to kind of put that into context, Tatum's at plus 4.7, which is in the 78th percentile. Now, Derek White measures off the roof in this category, plus 9.3, 93rd percentile. But you get the point. On a bad Washington team, this is a guy that certainly had a major impact. Oh, just real quickly, I mentioned the Towns thing briefly with Michael Pina. And I do think this is something to watch out for in the Eastern Conference if Towns, if they decide to put him on... The block here because it's interesting. Nas Reed is given an extension. So if you look at that Minnesota team, $90 million they right now have four centers when you're talking about Gobert, Towns, and Nas Reed. Three centers are on the books next year for $90 million. I do wonder if there's a scenario, as I alluded to briefly with Pina, that we see Carl Anthony Towns moved, and the team, to me, that would make the most sense if they do that is in the Eastern Conference, and that would be the New York Knicks. I don't see him fitting in with the Miami Heat, that type of culture and all that, but the New York Knicks, like, I know the Heat are looking for that next star. I don't think they would view Towns as that guy, and remember, there's no chance they would make that deal because of Jimmy Butler, and they already have Bam. So there's, like, the Cavaliers, another contender in the Eastern Conference, they're not looking for a big Philadelphia obviously has Joel Embiid. They're not looking for a big. Milwaukee, of course, is not looking for a big. So the Knicks would make a lot of sense as sort of a guy that can pick and pop and play with Jalen Brunson in terms of the pick and roll. So that would be interesting. Now that this Nas Reed thing is done, and look, maybe Minnesota just looks at it as, hey, this is a really good player. And if eventually we decide to move on from one of our centers, then we have Nas Reed here. And I just think that Gobert, you can't trade him this year. His value is really going to be added to Nadir. And after the haul you gave up 
for him last year. There's no way you can trade him this offseason, so it would make more sense. And quite frankly, you're going to get more back in return for Carl Anthony Towns. And if I was Minnesota, I would be looking to move him just because of the fact, if you look at sort of where they are going forward, you need to get some draft picks back. And you have Edwards, Gobert, and get something back in return in draft picks. That team starts to make more sense than it does right now. And I know you're just aborting the plan after one year, but the Gobert Towns thing is never going to work. So I would be, that would be a nice ad for the Knicks when we're looking at sort of the Eastern Conference here coming up this offseason. All right, we do have time for a call, so let's do that. The number is 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian, it's Ben Sarah from Seattle, Washington. Uh, Colin, all I hear people talking about on the Pats now is Hopkins, 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 Hopkins. And uh, I guess I would be excited if they signed him, but at the same time, I was kind of excited that they drafted a bunch of guys at the end of the draft that were receivers. Cause that's where they've always been successful. If they had picked somebody in the first or second round, I would have. We, we know what would have happened there. Um, but all these guys they got at the end, Butte, Douglas, and then also they got Malik Cunningham up, you know, as a free agent. Um, that guy they're going to convert to receiver. I think one of these guys will hit, and that's kind of the way the Patriots have always done it before. I, you know, they've never signed the big name receiver except for Moss, and uh, I know they looked great with Moss. But they never won a Super Bowl. Uh, so anyhow. That's my two cents on that. Okay, a couple of things to that. I appreciate the point, but this is what I will say. This is a new time for the Patriots, also a new time in the NFL, where weapons are certainly important, especially to these young quarterbacks. But all those years where you didn't have a legit bona fide number one, if you're talking about early in the Belichick era, that's before Tom Brady was really Tom Brady. Now, I would say in 03, he became Brady. Deion Branch was really good. Obviously, we wouldn't consider him to be an upper echelon receiver in the NFL, but he did win a Super Bowl MVP and Seattle gave him a whole boatload of money, even though he didn't deliver on that contract. But if you remember in the early 2000s, now Brady came up with clutch plays and clutch drives, etc. But when they were winning those first couple of Super Bowls, it was built on the defense and it was a totally different NFL. Remember, they totally changed the rules because Bill Polian, Peyton Manning and that group in Indianapolis were bitching. If you go back and watch the Rams Super Bowl, Watch it how the Patriots defensive backs handle those receivers. They absolutely mugged them at the line of scrimmage. You can't play that way anymore, right? So when the Patriots were winning those first couple of Super Bowls, the three and four years, it was all about the defense. And I would argue to your point about Randy Moss, it's not like Randy Moss wasn't good enough to win a Super Bowl. That They went they went undefeated, and they just so happened to lose to the Giants. You think the reason they didn't win the Super Bowl was Randy Moss? I mean, Brady was not particularly great in that game, and the defense had an opportunity late in that game to get a stop at the end, and you win the Super Bowl, right? So the reason you didn't win the Super Bowl in 07 is not because Moss. It's like you didn't win anything because Moss is on the team. You had a chance to win the Super Bowl, be the best team in NFL history because Randy Moss is on the team, and because Randy Moss enhanced everything you did as an offense. And then if you look at it, after the Randy Moss situation, so if we go from 07 on, When you look at Tom Brady, the only year out of that stretch where he actually won the Super Bowl without a legit bona fide number one option was the 2016 Super Bowl. Because if you look at it, or I should say the Super Bowl after the 2016 season, the 28-3 comeback, even though Rob Gronkowski was not technically a receiver, he was your number one option. Gronk was the number one option for this Patriots team for basically a decade. Now, in 16 which I still argue to this day, and I may have mentioned it on the pod before, I still believe that was Brady's best season. The Patriots, when Brady comes back from the suspension, 
they go 11 and 1 and they have that miraculous comeback against the Atlanta Falcons. Like he was unbelievable in that season. Not that he wasn't unbelievable in 07 and some of the other years where he 2017 he won the MVP. I just feel like 2016 was his best season. Matt Ryan won the MVP that season. Obviously, they weren't going to give it to Brady after serving the four-game suspension, even though the Patriots were 11-1. and The only loss they had that year was to Seattle. That's it, a team that was a perennial contender at that particular point in time. But my point being is you had Gronk for 14 and you had Gronk for 18, and then in the middle was the one year where you didn't have a legitimate bona fide number one receiver. And if you look across the NFL, or I should say weapon in the case of the Patriots, look at who's winning championships. It's Pat Mahomes... With Kelsey, right? I mean, you think about Matt Stafford had Cooper Cup and they added Odell Beckham Jr. I get he got injured, but they had Odell Beckham Jr. for that stretch run there. So when we look at these teams that are winning a Super Bowl, they have number one receivers now. That used to not be the case. Like maybe in the past, it wasn't mandatory that you had that type of player. But at this point in time, you need a number one option. And especially considering the fact I referenced Mahomes and think about the guy that Burrow has in Jamar Chase. I'm talking about the elite quarterbacks in the NFL Mac Jones is not near that level. So, yes, you need Hopkins. And I do feel like in some sense we're bracing ourselves, right, like to prepare. Well, if they don't get Hopkins, it's okay because they never go for the number one, the expensive option. Well, they need it right now because their quarterback needs that type of player. The one other thing I will say is let's say if they do land Hopkins, I wonder where Mac's going to be in terms of it's interesting to me to see the rise and the fall of Mac Jones because if you go back to after that, season that they made it to the playoffs his rookie year I felt like Mac was one of the only guys that showed up to that playoff game against Buffalo I thought he played really well and you're not going to be surprised by this Kendrick Bourne played really well like he showed up to that game and it felt like at that time Mac Jones and even though like I've never been the biggest Mac guy you know what I think he's limited in terms of the ceiling but one of the things that I thought at that point in time is he could be like the number one guy in the city first of all because he's playing for the Patriots right And after the miserable Cam Newton season, it's like, holy shit, you found your quarterback for the next decade or so. And at that point in time, the Bruins were not great. Remember, this is prior to this past season. This is two years ago where the Bruins ended up losing that season in the first round to the Carolina Hurricanes. But my point with that is just the fact that if you go back to that point in time, the Celtics, when the Patriots ended up losing in that postseason, they had just sort of turned it around with Ime. And the previous season, the Celtics had lost to the Brooklyn Nets in the playoffs. Remember, they had that. They lost four games to one. Tatum had the one big game. Jalen Brown was dealing with an injury. But other than that, like the Celtics are not in a good spot for a couple of months there after they lost to the Nets and before the real turnaround with Ime. Because remember, that was an up and down season for the Celtics prior to the turnaround after the first of January is when they really, really took off. And then, of course, Derek White to make it to the finals, all that. But prior to that, sort of Mac Jones was kind of becoming like the biggest star in town, right? Because You had some of the Red Sox guys and all that, but it felt like Mac was going to have an opportunity to become sort of the face of the city. And ever since that, it's gone completely downhill. Now, I know there's some excuses there when it comes to it, but look at it right now. The Celtics are coming off a loss in the Eastern Conference Finals. Can Mac get back to not number one in the city? Because right now it's Jason Tatum City, and I don't think number two maybe would be Pasta. I mean, Bergeron and Krejci will say, I'll get into that in a second here when I get into the Bruins. But my point with that is just if you look at it in terms of his hierarchy in the city, he was so high, and now he feels like he's so low where a lot of Patriots fans don't want it to be the future of the organization. And I do think he's got a big opportunity to kind of recoup his value here in the city in terms of how people perceive him. I do feel like there is a certain portion of Patriots fans 
that just back Mac no matter what, and they love Mac and all that different type of stuff. But I do feel like if you bounce back this season, if you get Hopkins, which I think it's critical at this juncture to get DeAndre Hopkins for Mac Jones, if you get Hopkins, you're starting to cook with gasoline a little bit here with the defense that you have, and then Mac can get into the conversation. He's not going to pass Tatum or anything along those lines, but he could get back into that conversation because there's really not a Red Sox guy right now. Like The biggest face of the Red Sox is Cora. Rafael Devers, and I've referenced the fact that he's been unlucky in terms of some of his numbers, but he's not really the face of the city right now. He's a great player, although he's not having a great season. Chris Sale is not that guy. He's always dealing with injuries. The Red Sox don't really have a candidate. For the Bruins, like I said, it's probably posture not going forward here because, of course, the guy is coming off an incredible season and he's entering the prime of his career. But Mac Jones certainly has... The opportunity to get back into the conversation here, non-Tatum division, if you will. All right. If you want to leave a voicemail, that number is 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. All right. Coming up next, I want to get into the bees and some of the off-season concerns here. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. All right, so I did want to get into the Bruins a little bit here because Monday and Monday night, I was reminded of sort of what a missed opportunity this past season was for the Bees. So Patrice Bergeron wins the Selkie as the best defensive forward, six of his career, most in NHL history. Jim Montgomery wins the Jack Adams Award for Coach of the Year. And Linus Olmark wins the Vesna for the best goaltender in the NHL. And oh, by the way, David Pasternak finished second in terms of the MVP voting for the Hart Trophy behind only Connor McDavid. Like every other year, David Pasternak probably wins the MVP. It's sort of like playing at the same time as Wayne Gretzky or in the NBA, playing at the same time as Michael Jordan. It's just going to be awfully difficult to beat out Connor McDavid for the Hart Trophy going forward because he's just so much better than anybody else. So by the awards, you had the best coach, you had the best defensive forward, you had the second best player, as we alluded to, and you had the best goalie all during the regular season, right? Even though... We're not saying that Olmark's the best goalie in the NHL, but for the season, you had all those guys. Best coach, best defensive forward, second best player, best goaltender. And it all came to a crashing halt. First of all, with Bergeron, he came back when the Bees had a 3-1 series lead. They lost all three of the games he played in. Okay, he was minus six. 
On five on five, Bergeron, the Bees were outscored four to nothing with them on the ice. They were outshot 25 to 18. The Corsi, which accounts for block shots, shots wide of the net, and shots on goal, 53 to 30. The Bruins were in terms of in the negative in the Corsi. And it wasn't all his fault. I'm not saying that. Like he was banged up and he was out there for a couple of careless turnovers. I give him credit for playing through the issue he was dealing with in his back. But if you look at it during the regular season, of the players, of the forwards, I should say, that had at least 800 minutes of five-on-five ice time, the Bees with Bergeron on the ice gave up just 18 goals. Best in the NHL. They outscored teams 46-18. to That's a plus 28 in terms of five-on-five. The goals for percentage is 71.9%. That was the best in the entire NHL among forwards. So you go from in the playoffs, and I get it, he was banged up, he wasn't the same guy. We're talking about five-on-five, you're outscored by four goals. He was not the same player during the regular season. He was basically one of the most valuable players in the entire NHL. And look, some of that was set up by not as many face-offs in the defensive zone that he had in years past. Charlie Coyle took on a lot of that duty. But the point being, you go from a guy that's plus 28 on five on five during the regular season, you're only giving up 18 goals, flat out dominant, to the postseason where it's four goals for the Panthers and zero for the Bruins on five on five. It was an issue for this team in the postseason. So he was not the same guy. So that's one thing from the regular season, the best defensive forward in the NHL, not in the postseason, and he missed the beginning because he got injured in that Montreal game. So that was an issue. Then you look at Olmark, 1.89 goals against during the regular season. First, only other goaltender, or I should say the only goaltender in the NHL south of two. That's how good Olmark was compared to the rest of the league. Now, a lot of that does have to do with the defensive system and the shots that he was facing, et cetera. All that, I get all that, but still dominant numbers. You look at the postseason, 3.34 goals against, up from 1.89. That 3.34 would have ranked 34th in the NHL during the regular season. Then you look at the save percentage during the regular season, for which he won the Vesna for, 928, that was first. During the postseason, that was at 896. That would have ranked 38th in the NHL. So he went from first in goals against to it would have been 40th, and first in save percentage, it would have been 38th in the regular season. Now, Olmark was banged up, as we found out. He was also horrible in game six. He was atrocious. And then remember, in game five, he had the careless turnover behind the net in overtime that led to the Kachuk Remember, he's just trying to clear it out of the zone. Doesn't work whatsoever. So that was careless. So that elite goaltending that was part of the Bruins ethos, that was part of the reason the Bruins set the record for the most wins and the most points, that was non-existent once we got into the postseason, right? So best defensive forward, not there. Best goaltender in the NHL, not there. And then the coach of the year. Well, there was a laundry list of issues with Jim Montgomery in the postseason. And look, he had a great regular season. But remember, when he brought back Bergeron, didn't put him on the same line as Marshawn, which everybody in the Bruins fan base was like, what the fuck is he doing? These guys always play together. It's worked for years. Why wouldn't you put them together? And of course, we he made the adjustment quickly, but that made no sense. That was a head-scratching thing. And then game six... He puts Clifton back into the lineup inexcusably for Grizzly. Clifton in game six on the ice. The Bees outshot 12 to five, three goals against zero four, and he had two bad turnovers. It made no sense. And he put Clifton and Forbert back together. They were outshot 41 to 26 on five on five in the series. I have no idea why he went back to Clifton when Grizzly was fine. I'm not saying Grizzly was unbelievable, but he was much better than Clifton. There was no reason to go back to that. Then he waited until game seven to make the switch to Swayman. When Swayman during the regular season was top four in both save percentage and goals against, it's part of the reason the Bruins goaltending was so great during the season 
And part of the reason, quite frankly, that Olmark won the Vesna is that he could take all these games off because of how good Swayman was. So the problem is he waited until game seven to put Swayman in the net and he didn't have enough time to get ready, right? You needed to get him fresh in a game six, et cetera, or in a game five. You just took too long to make that adjustment, especially now when we knew that he was banged up was Olmark. Like now we're realizing, oh, there was a reason he wasn't playing while well. he's banged up. Obviously the coach knew about that and he waited until game seven to make the adjustment, right? And then in game seven, another thing he did, if you remember, he went to that coil hall to Bruss line that was outshot seven to three. The course he was 12-4. And I don't get why you don't just put DeBrus back on the Marshawn Bergeron line, which had worked all season long. Like he finally put the Krejci Zaka pasta line back together. Why wouldn't you just put the DeBrus Marshawn Bergeron line back together? That's another perplexing thing. So the coach of the year who brought in this system where all the defensemen were involved in the rush. We've had career years from Lindholm, McAvoy, from my perspective. I know he dealt with the injury early. He had the best season of his career. So all this work you did during the regular season as the best coach in the NHL and the culture completely shifted with Jim Montgomery. It felt like you needed that breath of fresh air, even though we just witnessed Bruce Cassidy winning the Stanley Cup. Jim Montgomery was the right coach for the team during the regular season. That coaching advantage you had, that coach of the year you had during the regular season, non-existent during the postseason and then you think about it so altogether, your captain was banged up and not good the coach was horrendous and the Vesna trophy winner was actually a liability in the net rather than a strength so all those awards that we saw on Monday night they just don't register the same anymore right like this has been great if the Bruins won the cup and you're celebrating all these awards but right now and I'm not trying to take away any of what these guys did during the regular season but it just can you really get excited that Olmark won the Vesna or the Montgomery won the coach of the year after seeing the series he had? Bergeron, that's great. He's always going to be a legendary. It's great that he won another Selkie, and that's awesome. But you can't really get excited a lot of these for the, a lot of these awards based on what transpired in the playoffs. And then prior to the awards, we're reminded that the best this is the best team we'll see on paper in the foreseeable future for the Bruins. And it's not going to be coming back next year, right? I mean, we were we found out about that before the awards because they trade Taylor Hall essentially to free up salary cap space. And we knew that they were going to have to move on from some good players because they were in a salary cap crunch and they went all in to try to win the cup, which I still say that was the right move. You put together the best roster to win the cup, especially considering some of your aging veterans. It was the right move, but now you're paying the price for that, right? And look, if this means you're going to re-sign Bertuzzi, which I hope that's the case with Hall gone, although Bertuzzi rather is going to have a big market because he's one of the best free agents available. There's already been a report that Florida is interested in Bertuzzi, another cup contender, if you will, that just played for the Stanley Cup. But remember, if you look at Taylor Hall when he came back from the injury, eight points in that postseason, tied for third on the Bruins, five goals tied for first with Bertuzzi and Pasta. And by the way, on five on five, the Bees outscored the Panthers six to two with Hall on the ice. Best on the team, he was tied with Zaka when it comes to that category. And one of the things we said all season long about Taylor Hall is you have such a luxury, right? Where you have a guy that won the Hart Trophy, former MVP of the NHL, is playing on your third line. And he was on the shutdown line a lot of times with Charlie Coyle on that third line where Hall sort of adjusted his game. This guy was one of the best scorers or goal scorers, I should say, in the NHL. And he was on the shutdown line for the Bruins with Charlie Coyle. So it's just a luxury that you had. And look, I get it. Bertuzzi's entering his 28-year-old season and Hall's entering his 32-year-old season. If you're choosing between one of those two players, I would choose Bertuzzi as well. I agree with Don Sweeney when it comes to that move. If they land Bertuzzi, right? That's now the most important thing going forward is 
you got to make sure Bertuzzi's here going forward or else you lose Bertuzzi and Hall in the same offseason. And I have to believe that the Bruins have a pretty good idea of what he wants in terms of the contract if they traded Taylor Hall, right? Now, with Bertuzzi, I love the fit with the Bruins. In his 21 regular season games, four goals, he had the 12 assists, so 16 points. Playoffs, as we alluded to, 10 points, tied with Marshawn for the lead on the team. Five goals tied with Hall and Pasternak for the lead. And remember, he just felt like he fit into this Bruins team. Remember when he took Nick Cousins' stick? He just took it from him, and then he snapped it on the bench. It was just epic. So he fit in perfectly with this team. The question is, can you bring him back? Because now Bertuzzi coming back to the Bruins, especially at his age, and look, he's dealt with a lot of injuries throughout his career. Now he's healthy when he came over for the Bruins, but he does feel like not just on the ice, but off the ice, he's sort of like the perfect fit with this team. Marshawn has talked about it before. He just kind of gets under your skin. We saw him do this with the Bruins prior to him getting here. So I hope this means that they keep Bertuzzi. And if that's the choice, you definitely want to take Bertuzzi back rather than Taylor Hall. And then Fluto Shinzawa had this report in The Athletic. Dmitry Orlov, unlikely to be re-signed. And Orlov, eight assists in the postseason, which led the team. Now, he did have that careless turnover. But if you look at it, 17 points in 23 games after coming over from the Capitals. Like, he was unbelievable for this team. And one of the conversations we had, I had this conversation with Lam McHugh, and I had it with Andrew Raycroft as well. It's like, hey, you can have, if you really want, a top-tier defenseman in three pairings. You can have McAvoy, you can have Lindholm, and you can have Orlov all separated if you really wanted to do that. So now this is another guy that going back to the depth that this Bruins team had, he's not going to be part of the equation going forward either because the Bruins don't have the salary cap space to bring him back, especially if they're bringing back Bertuzzi. And then there's this. Cam Neely said, for us, and this is in regards to Bergeron and Krejci, for us, we've got to really kind of plan like they're not coming back until we hear otherwise. We would not be doing the organization a service if we plan on them coming back and we're told they're not. Hopefully we'll hear something soon, but we certainly want to give those guys the time they need. So I don't believe it behooves Cam Neely to put this out there if he thinks they're coming back, because what's the point, right? I feel like they they think organizationally those guys aren't coming back, and this is why he puts that out there. He's sort of preparing the fan base that, hey, these guys are not coming back. So my overwhelming point with this is, so you could be going into next season, no Bergeron, you could be without Krejci, both those guys, as Cam Neely said, they're not planning on those guys coming back. Orlov's not going to be piece, uh, part of the team either. And then you look at the fact that Taylor Hall is already gone. So this team that was so deep last season, they're not going to be that same level of team going forward. And if you look across the NHL, the Panthers, we know who they are. They beat the Bruins in the first round. That's a really good team. And Kachuk's an absolute stud. The Leafs are, in terms of FanDuel's odds right now, they're second in terms of the Stanley Cup odds. And I know you can make all these jokes about the Leafs, but that's a very talented team. In terms of the odds, the Devils, they're coming back. They're up there in terms of their fourth in the odds, it looks like right now. Jack Hughes and company, that's a young team that may have even been ahead of schedule last year. The Rangers are still a really talented team. And then the Hurricanes and the Lightning are still really good in the Eastern Conference as well. So you have all these teams you have to compete with. And it felt like the Bruins just had the perfect regular season, the best season in NHL history. And now it just feels like a nightmare. This feels like the last best chance that this team had, right? And think about the team you had. You had Pasta and Zaka and Krejci on the second line. You had Bergeron and DeBrusque and Marshawn on the first line. And then you had Coyle and Hall and Bertuzzi. And you could play around with where you wanted to put Bertuzzi when you got into the playoffs. 
and you had Lindholm and Carlo and then McAvoy and Grizzlick and Orlov and Forbert. This team was just so deep and you felt like you found the perfect coach for this group as well. And it just feels like you are on your way to the perfect ending with this group. You're going to hoist up the Stanley Cup and then it's all taken away from you. So it just feels like to me, like we're talking about the Celtics in the offseason. We're talking about the Bruins in the offseason. And there is sort of this level of excitement with the Celtics because we've seen changes, right? It felt like changes were needed to be made, adding guys to the coaching staff when we talk about Sam Cassell and Charles Lee. And then they needed to do something different from an offensive perspective. They couldn't just run back the same thing where they're just bombing threes and it's very similar personnel. They needed to do something and they bring up bring in a guy that has a unique skill set in Christoph Porzingis. And it feels like, as we talked about with Pina, this could be the biggest move in the Eastern Conference, bringing in Kristaps Porzingis to go along with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So it does feel like, if you're thinking about it from a Celtics perspective, with Tatum coming into his prime, with Jalen Brown in his prime, bringing in Kristaps Porzingis, that the Celtics are still in the middle of this. They are. They're still in the middle of this situation where they're competing for championships. And outside of the Denver Nuggets, they have the best chance to win an NBA championship by the odds. So the Celtics are still at that level where you feel like next year, if they don't get back to the finals, it'd be a disappointment. Nobody would say that about the Bruins right now. It feels like from my perspective, that window is closed. And maybe I'll feel like an idiot for saying this, but with this core, it feels like this thing is just completely closed and you had your opportunity. It was right there for you. And now in terms of sort of the excitement level with the Bruins organization going forward, it's just not going to be there. Like we went on this magical ride during the regular season and it just came to an abrupt halt. And I had a ton of fun watching this team during the regular season, but just looking back, seeing all the awards that were handed out Monday night, seeing Hall getting traded, finding out that Dmitry Orlov in all likelihood is not going to be back, even though we knew that there was going to be a salary cap crunch, it just feels like, man, this was such a missed opportunity for this team. You could have legitimately, not that you would have been the most talented team in NHL history, but you could have went down as one of the best teams in the history of the NHL based on what you did during the regular season if you had just gotten over the hump and gotten to the Stanley Cup final. And to make matters worse, your former coach hoists the Stanley Cup as well. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast. And we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.